Now, uh, there was a, a study that was done recently on vegetarians and vegetarianism, and it said that there were upwards of 15 million people in the United States who would consider themselves vegetarians. Some of you might have seen this study that came out. And they broke vegetarianism down into lots of different categories. And the, the strictest, most hardcore vegetarians were the vegans, who don't have animal, any, any animal products whatsoever. And there was approximately one to one and a half million vegans, so about 10% of those who are vegetarians. And then from vegan, you had the next category, and that was the lacto-vegetarian. And these are people who will eat their fruits and vegetables and have dairy products. And then you go from lacto-vegetarian to ovo-vegetarian. Now, I got, my, I got my fruits and vegetables, and I have my eggs. I'll eat eggs, too. And sometimes lacto-vegetarians are ovo-vegetarians, and sometimes ovo-vegetarians are lacto-vegetarians. You know, you kind of mix it up. Then, of course, you have your classic vegetarian, which is fruits and vegetables and pretty much anything else as long as it's not meat, as long as it's not the flesh of the animal. It's like, okay, well, that's all the categories of vegetarians, right? Nope. We keep on going. The next category is the pescatarian. Okay, so, so we got a fruits and vegetables, but I'm going to eat fish, too, because that's not meat. It's fish, and I'm still a vegetarian, apparently, if I'm a pescatarian. We have any pescatarians here? No? Okay. Um, then we got the next category, which is great. I don't even know why this is a vegetarian. It's called a polotarian, or I guess if we're Spanish, poyotarian. Um, and they eat fruits and vegetables and poultry, primarily chicken, because apparently chicken isn't meat anymore. Well, who knew? So we got the, the polotarians, and then my favorite category is the last one, and that is the flexitarians. And the flexitarians, they, they only eat fruit and vegetables unless they feel like eating a little bit of meat. Then they'll have meat too, all right? And they're still a vegetarian. They're just a flexitarian. They kind of flexibly adjust to their appetite. Um, all of these are vegetarians, according to the latest study. And not surprisingly, about 84% of vegetarians abandon their diet altogether within one year of starting it. So there we go. Um, what this tells me is that the idea of vegetarianism appeals to a lot of people, but when it comes down to actually eating a vegetarian diet, a lot of people like to kind of pick and choose what they actually want to consume. And when we look at Jesus today, we're going to look at what it means to be his disciple, to follow him. And I just want to look at it because I think a lot of us, and I include myself in this, can oftentimes pick and choose what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We like to be a Christian, but what that entails, well, we kind of define that for ourselves. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you know some people who you think that they might fall into that categorization. But we are going to look at 
Jesus, as he called his first disciples to him in a formal way in Matthew chapter 4. So you can open up your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4. And we are going to look at this section of Scripture in three parts. First, we're going to get some context. And after we get the context and understand kind of where we're situated, then we are going to look at the call of Christ and finally the commitment of the disciples. So, three sections. We got some C alliteration going on. That wasn't part of the experiment. I can still do that. All right. And... And so that's where we're going to be. We're going to look primarily at 18 through 22, Matthew 4, 18 through 22. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you draw us to yourself, that your spirit moves in our hearts and our minds and that we have the opportunity to respond to you, to respond to your truth as you illuminate and open our eyes. Lord, I pray that you would do that now, that you would open our hearts and minds to your truth, that your spirit would, would give us fertile soil within us, that the seeds of your truth would grow deep roots and grow forth to be able to weather any storm, Lord. Pray that you would speak through me, that you would give me the self-control to guard my lips, and that your truth alone, to the glory of your name alone, would be spoken. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want us to start actually in verse 12. We're going to look at verses 12 and 13, and then jump to verse 17. Oh, by the way, yeah, I got no PowerPoint because part of the experiment I wasn't allowed to do that. So, 12 and 13, here we go. Now, when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Jump down to verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we're getting the context here for verses 18 through 20, which is really what we're going to be focusing on. But last week we saw Jesus as he performed his very first public miracle at the wedding of Cana. And by that time he had been ministering primarily in the southeast of Galilee near the Jordan River and really kind of near Jericho, which if you go over to Israel, there's a couple different sites where Jesus was said to have been baptized. The, the traditional site is actually closest to Jericho, not the tourist trap site, although it's really beautiful if you go there. You should, should come with us to our trip and see it. Um, now, by this point in his ministry, he had... Lots of people who recognized him as a rabbi or as a teacher or even as a prophet, but he had not yet begun his formal kind of itinerant ministry where he was traveling all about preaching in the different synagogues that he started to do in verse 17. So this was kind of at the wedding of Cana. He wasn't there yet, and he didn't have his 12 disciples yet. He had not yet formally 
called them to himself. So once John the Baptist is arrested, Matthew tells us here that Jesus moved his ministry to Capernaum. And Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So you have the Sea of Galilee, which is kind of in northern Israel. And then you have the Jordan River, which connects to the Dead Sea, right? Kind of on the eastern side of Israel. It would be great if I had a picture for you so I wouldn't have to keep gesticulating with my hands. But, you know, so, so we're in the north of Israel in the Galilee, right on the Sea of Galilee. That's where Capernaum is. And it just so happens that Capernaum is the home base for Peter and Andrew. That's where they lived. And that's where they had their fishing operation. And they did that in tandem with James and John and Zebedee, who were, who was the father of James and John. Okay? So, we have, we have this kind of context here, and it's and it's in Capernaum that we read our text for today. Let's look at verses 18 through 22 of Matthew chapter 4. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, Upon first reading of this little interaction with Peter and Andrew, James, and John, it, it kind of seems abrupt, and, and it almost doesn't make much sense. It's, it's almost as if Jesus was out kind of going for a walk, and he saw these fishermen, and he was like, hey, guys, why don't you just come and follow me? Four strangers. Why would they decide out of nowhere to just leave their business and their families and follow Jesus? So this is where we need some context. If, if we read the Gospel of Matthew alongside of the other Gospels, it actually gives us a little bit more context here. So in John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, we learn that Jesus had already met several of these guys. When Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist, Several of them were there listening to the teaching of John the Baptist. And when Jesus approached, John the Baptist said, Hey, here's the one who I've been telling you about. And then they started to hang out and at least listen to Jesus for a time. But they hadn't been formally called yet, so they didn't stick around with Jesus now, we read last week about the wedding of Cana, and it does say that at the wedding of Cana that there were some disciples with Christ, but we don't know who they were. And these were people who were, at least to some degree, listening to the teaching of Christ. It may have been these guys, it may have been other people, we don't know. But if we look at Luke 5, we get a bigger 
uh, explanation of what exactly happened here in Matthew chapter 4. And in Luke 5, we read that Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee, as Matthew 4 says, but there was also a large crowd that was following him. Matthew doesn't mention that. And that crowd was seeking to hear Jesus teach and to be healed and have all these other things done that Jesus had been doing. And so Jesus gets into a boat. You might remember this story. Jesus gets into a boat and sits in the boat or stands, but he's in the boat just on the edge of the water speaking up to the people in around Capernaum. Well, Luke 5 tells us whose boat that was. Whose boat was that? It was Peter's boat. And so Peter, Andrew, James, and John are listening to Jesus teach all throughout the day as this large crowd is there. And then the crowd leaves, we get to nighttime, and Jesus tells them, hey, did you guys, did you guys catch anything? Like, no, not really. Actually, Luke 5 doesn't say that. I'm kind of imagining that that is what the conversation went. But here's what Jesus did say. He said, hey, uh, take out your nets and, uh, yeah, just, just throw it into the water. And Luke responds in Luke chapter 5, verse 5, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And, of course, I'm sure you remember the story they caught so many fish that their nets began to break. Which, by the way, if you notice the detail, is why it says that James and John were mending their nets. Did you see that in there? And Matthew's like, why were they mending? Well, because they were all breaking over the massive catch of fish that Luke tells us about. And after they brought in the catch and made their way back to the shore, we then read in Matthew 4 how Jesus formally invited them to be his disciples. So when you understand all of that, it begins to make sense why they actually would have followed him, right? This wasn't just a random conversation with random guys who Jesus called out of nowhere. He called them with an understanding of who they were, and they had an understanding of who he was. So that's the contest. Now we look at the call. I want us to look at the call. And the call is in Matthew 4, 19. If I were you guys, I would underline this verse. I would highlight it. I would memorize it. This is one of those verses that it reminds us of what our relationship to Jesus is. Right? We know that he is our elder brother because we're adopted into God the Father's family and he is our elder brother. But... He is also our Savior, right? Died on the cross for all of us who have put our faith in Him. Praise God that He's our Savior. But He's also our rabbi, our teacher, our master. And here is where we see this. This reminds us of our identity as followers of Jesus, as those who are seeking to be like Him. And this is what Jesus says. He says, follow me, part one, and I will make you, part two, Fishers of men, part three. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We're going to look at those three parts. Part number one is follow me. 
Now, in the Greek, follow me literally means come here to me. That, those are the literal, the literal translations. Or you could also take it, come here behind me. Either way, it is a command that Jesus is directing to these men to get by him and to get near him or behind him. And implied in the command is that it's time for you to imitate me. You are to get behind me and to imitate me. That is how the Greek of this reads. Our focus, our, our, our presence, our, our priorities, our passions, our time, all that we are and what we have and what we have to offer, all of them are to be moved to where Jesus is and to be conformed to who He is and what He says. That's, that's what the call to follow Jesus is all about. We are to orient ourselves completely on Him. Um, how many of you know what the, the Taj Mahal is? Yeah, it's a very famous mausoleum in India. It's a very beautiful building, the kind of the white gleaming marble and towers. And this was built by Shah Jahan, when his favorite wife passed away, giving birth to their, like, 13th or 14th child. can't remember. And he wanted to honor her, and so they, they had her body put in the casket and sealed it up, and they began to build this amazing mausoleum. And it took them... Years and years and years and years to build. I think it was 12 or 13 years. Uh, around the 11th year or so, the Shah came to inspect the mausoleum. And he wanted to make sure that it was exactly as he had designed it. It was as beautiful as his wife deserved and to really honor her memory. And while he was touring the grounds, he stumbled across some of the, um, the things that they had left out as they were building. And one of those things that he stumbled across was a coffin-shaped box. And instead of having it just kind of moved around and moved out of his way, the Shah was so uh, upset that this box was in his way that he told his servants to just get rid of it, throw it away. So they did. And they finished the edifice, the mausoleum, and they went to go and find, where is my wife? And they found that they had gotten rid of her coffin. And to this day, when you go over to the Taj Mahal, they don't know where the wife is. Some people say, well, she was, she was buried somewhere else. Uh, some people say, oh, no, she's in there. Um, but the, <laughs> the legend the, the goes that, no, she was actually thrown out with the trash, and they don't know where she is. 
And so they don't let anyone down into the basement of the Taj Mahal. It's been sealed off for years and years because they won't let anyone check to see who's down there. Why do I tell you this story? Because I think that oftentimes as Christians, we can be like that in how we pursue our faith. We have been called by Jesus himself to follow him, to follow Christ. And oftentimes, we start off in our faith all about our pursuit of Jesus. But then we settle into a routine, or we get comfortable in how we're practicing our faith, and pretty soon it can become more about the practice of our faith than about pursuing Jesus himself. And I want to make sure I'm doing my devotions. And I want to make sure that I'm going to service and worshiping and really experiencing a powerful worship. Or I want to go and hear the preacher preach. Or I want to make sure that I'm in a good fellowship community. And by the way, those are all fine things. But if we do any of those to the exclusion or to the minimization of their ability to get us to Jesus, then we're, we're not pursuing the right thing. Does that make sense? Right? We, we need to follow Him at the center of everything because it's only as we grow in our relationship and our connection to Christ that we will actually mature in our faith, because if we don't, otherwise, we'll just mature in our practice of our faith, and the religiosity of our faith. Hear those drums. You hear those drums? You guys on the camera won't hear those drums, but I think we got like our Saturday night jazz band going down the street. Nice. Closing the doors won't help. That's okay. We are going to be able to focus through this, right? <laughs> I can tell we're going, to, we're going to do great. So here's the thing. We are to follow Jesus above all else, but it is the Jesus of Scripture as He reveals Himself that we are to follow. Because here's the other trap. We follow a Jesus of our own design, of our own making, we put Jesus in a little box that we want him to fit in. And that's the Jesus that we follow. Instead of who has been revealed to us in Scripture. And if you study Jesus, if you actually study how he taught, what he expected of his disciples, he expects not only our love and devotion, of course, and we know that he was full of love and grace and mercy. We like all that stuff. But that Jesus expected his disciples to be obedient. He, he gave lots of instructions that he expects us to actually submit to and to follow. Not for the sake of just doing those things, but because all of them are calculated to help us to get to know him better and to keep us separated from the distractions and the temptations of the world. 
Because as we talked about in the beginning, so often I want to follow Jesus and I'm going to be a flex-a-Christian. And so I'm going to maybe sometime just get a little bit of this over here when I feel like it. Well, chicken really isn't that bad. So yeah, we'll have, we'll have this too with, with my Christianity. And we can so often do this in making our pursuit of Christ a pursuit of someone who we want him to be as opposed to who he has revealed himself as. Does that make sense? Right? So we need to be mindful of that. Follow me. Follow Christ. Christ alone as he has revealed himself. We are to imitate him, pursue him, submit to him, conform to him. And that's the next part. Follow me and I will make you. Now I got to tell you, this is, I think, my favorite part of this command. Because how many of you will say amen to the fact that it is the power of God that is transforming us and it's not our own responsibility? Can I get an amen for that? Yep. It is Christ who makes us. Jesus who transforms us. The Holy Spirit that he gives us that moves in us and shapes us and refines us and matures us. If it was up to us, we'd all be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? Right? That's why Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Zechariah 4.6 says, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Greek word for make means to prepare for a specific purpose. To to fashion something for a specific end or to, to write an author something with a clear story in mind. And that's what Christ is doing. He is making us and refining us and preparing us and authoring our, our faith, our salvation. Right? He who began a good work in you will see it to completion right? At the day of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1. He is preparing each of us for a specific end. And if we try to, try to get in there and do it ourselves, that's when we throw things off, when things go haywire. Now, we're not absolved of responsibility in this, of course, right? That's what Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. So we're to pursue him. We're to submit to him. We're to, we're to devote our, our everything, heart, soul, mind, and strength to him. But we do that knowing that it is God in us, the spirit in us who is moving and changing and refining. He will make us into the image of his choosing. That's very, very important. Because just like we like to put Jesus into a box, we also like to put ourselves into a box. How many of you have done that before? Where you decide, this is what I want to be. This is the role that I want to do. You know, as I continue to mature in my faith, um, I so appreciate our country 
But the more and more I see how much of what our country feeds us and tries to drip to us is just a lie. The whole concept of uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be anything you want to be, that is a completely anti-Christian thought. Did you ever think about that? We are to rely on God in every way and seek to be who He calls us to be. The complete opposite. We don't get to pick. We get to pursue. There's a difference. We pursue what the Lord leads us to. We pursue what He is refining us for and the opportunities that He lays before us and the doors that He opens and closes, we pursue where he shows us to go, and we have a contentment and a peace with that because we don't have the responsibility of having to figure it out. Praise God. He's got it planned, and we just pursue, knowing that he will make us into whatever it is he's called us to be. I mean, when you begin to understand that and actually, actually walk in that, that is an extremely freeing truth. But we know how the enemy attacks us, right? The enemy comes in and the enemy says, oh, you should be this, you should do that. That's how you, this is what you should have. And all these lies start coming in to try to make us discontent with where the Lord has us. Follow me and I will make you. We allow the Lord to move. That is what a follower, a disciple of Christ does. And, and the more that we push against that and try to do something that we want for ourselves, that is just evidence that we are not really fully submitted to Christ as our molder, as our sculptor, as our teacher, our master. And what is he making us into? Well, that's the third part. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Ultimately, whatever the Lord is calling you to and shaping you to, it will be for the purpose of speaking truth to other men and women so that they can hear about how awesome our God is and what he has done for them. How much he loves them, that he died for them, that he died for all of us. That in Christ we can have forgiveness and freedom. That we can have hope and peace. That through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, we can walk free and unashamed. When we submit to him by faith. I mean, that is very good news. And we have the privilege of sharing that as the Lord shapes us and places us where he would have us to share that. Not where we think we need to be, but right where he puts us. And that should be our primary goal at all times, should be sharing our faith. And pouring into believers who are less mature than us so that we can see them to grow and develop. We are to train other people even as we share truth with those who have not yet come to Christ. And, and this is hard for some of us because 
oftentimes we can get sidetracked with lots of good things, right? Again, there's a pitfall to every one of these because even though Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, that's his last command, right? Matthew 28, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's, that's, our, that's our marching orders. Even though that is what we're called to do, we can so easily get sidetracked into other passions that aren't bad, but aren't, shouldn't be our highest priority. And those things, like I said, it could, be, it could be a ministry that you're a part of, that you're so into the ministry that you forget that, well, actually, I need to be, I need to be talking about Jesus in this context. I'm not doing this just for the sake of doing this. I'm doing this for the sake of making Jesus famous through this. Or, or some political issue, right? I'm not doing this just because of the political issue. I'm doing this so that ultimately I can make Jesus famous and I can, I can share his love and truth with people. Or maybe something completely, it's just, I'm focusing on my kids because that's my ministry. Well, are you focusing on your kids for the purpose of making Jesus famous to them? That they are hearing truth and seeing it lived out in your life? Are you intentional about thinking through that? It's important that we evaluate how we are pursuing that call to be fishers of men as Jesus makes us into that because it's so easy to get sidetracked into other things. I always remember um, C.S. Lewis and his screw tape letters. I think it's the first letter. It was written during World War II, and he writes in there, screw tape is um, a devil, the uncle to Wormwood, who he's writing to, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it. And in that first letter, screw tape tells Wormwood, listen, our aim with the enemy, i.e. Christians, our aim with the enemy should always be to inflame their passions to anything other than Christ. And the example that he says is, look, look at this war right now. So many Christians can be inflamed to one of two categories, either patriotism or pacifism. So let's do that. Let us stoke the flames of their passions so that they become so fervent about either patriotism or pacifism that they forget who their commander is. Jesus. And their job to spread his truth. Now, that's just a World War II context, but take that into our context and take whatever it is that you're passionate about. Do not by the grace of God, allow the enemy to inflame us to a passionate pursuit of something that fails to elevate Christ to the place he should be through that thing. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's the call of Christ. And now we look at our final section, the commitment of the disciples. And here's just a couple of things that I just jotted down real quick in terms of the only way for us to actually commit to that call is, number one, first and foremost, if we have a humble spirit. 
if there is any pride within us, then we are not going to follow Christ. And we are not going to allow Him to work in us. We'll want to do it ourselves. And we're not going to seek to do the things that He calls us to. We'll seek to do what we want to do. At every point of that call, we will oppose Him unless, by the grace of God, we have a spirit of humility. Remember in Luke 5, 5, when Peter responded to Christ with throwing the nets? What did he say? He said, Master, which in the Greek means overseer, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. So he recognized Christ as someone who he should listen to, as kind of an overseer. But then after they caught all the fish, and after they came in and Jesus spoke to them and said, hey, hey, I want you to follow me. Peter, Peter says in Luke 5, 8, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He changed his reference to Christ from master overseer to Lord, which means owner, king, sovereign. You're not just an overseer, the one kind of in charge here. You are the king. And that was the spirit that all of these disciples had in setting down their nets and following Christ. They recognized him as master, as king. And that only comes through a humble spirit. To the degree that we sit on our throne, the throne of our lives, we will not allow Christ to be on the throne. It's directly inverse relationship. The more that we humbly submit to Christ and allow Him to lead, the better we will be at giving up our own control and vice versa. The more we control, the less we'll be following Christ. And it'll just be the, the me show instead of the Jesus show. Secondly, recognize that each of these guys, they, they counted the cost of what they were doing. This wasn't an emotionally filled decision. This wasn't a, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this really great experiential context plea for you to come and follow Jesus. They understood what he was saying. And they knew what he taught. They had been around him before. They'd heard him teach before. They were familiar with him. This was not blind faith. This was informed faith, knowing who Jesus was. The Spirit of God had already been working on their hearts, and they counted the cost and found the cost far, far below the worth, the surpassing value of Christ. And they would come to know that more and more and more as they grew to know Christ more and more. And that is what commitment looks like. We recognize the surpassing value of Jesus and we get to know that value even more and more as we grow in our faith. Finally, they followed without hesitation. It says they immediately followed him. If I were you, I would circle that. Immediately. Both Peter and Andrew and James and John, the text says, immediately, without hesitation, they went. When you know the truth, a disciple of Jesus immediately acts upon it by the grace of God. There is no delay. 
Delayed obedience is disobedience. How many of you had parents who told you that? Delayed obedience is disobedience. We immediately go when we hear the call of our master and we serve him delighted that we have the opportunity to do so. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to physically abandon our jobs or our families. We're not going to neglect responsibilities. But what it does mean is that by the grace of God, our priorities are are changed and shifted. Our values are shuffled around so that Christ's values and his priorities and his plans for us come first. And we conform to that, not trying to make Jesus conform to what we want. Jeremiah 16, 16 says, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them those who are wandering. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them for every, from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. The Lord is raising us up to be fishers of men and hunters of men. There are no vegetarian Christians. We eat lots of fish and meat. It's right there in, in Jeremiah 16, 16. Right, Serena? Come on. No, I mean, we maybe are flexitarians or something. Still vegetarians. But, you know, a kid, we can't be like vegetarians, though, who like to pick and choose and keep the title because it's cool, but that don't actually commit to that diet. They have all kinds of little carve-outs and exclusions and ways that I can cheat. Oh, today's my cheat day. Oh, you have a cheat day? There is no such thing as a cheat day with Jesus. We're either in or out, guys. We are his follower or we're not, or we're just a pretender, or we're completely adverse. That's a different conversation altogether. By the grace of God, let us humbly submit and follow Jesus alone. Getting to know him as he reveals himself better and better, more and more. Allowing his spirit and power and his prerogative to control and move and shape our lives. As we do the work of discipleship, of fishing and hunting right where he plants us. Counting the cost, submitting to him, knowing what it is we're doing, following immediately as he gives us direction, and seeing the multitude of fish that are brought in at his command. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.